Welcome to Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Uh, awesome. Glad to have you here. My name is Christian Lindbeck. I'm the lead pastor at Hillcrest, so it is my special privilege uh, to welcome you here this morning. As Carlo already said, uh, we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 thesis to the Wittenberg door. Uh, I don't think he intended it to be that provocative, uh, but he uh, uh, launched this reformation which has been great for the church, which put the Scripture in our language and the centrality of Christ uh, back into the middle. And all morning we're celebrating kind of these moments where we are reflecting on what was uh, purchased for us through the work of the Reformation. And certainly uh, this opportunity right now, this next part of our gathering, where we're all going to open the Word of God together. If you have one, it's in English. That was a game changer. Uh, You can read the language Uh, we have the opportunity to look at it, read it, interpret it, and apply it together. So it is not my priestly authority just to tell you what it says, but you're right for us all to look at it and let the Spirit of God work on us and uh, dialogue for what this means to us. And uh, Martin Luther had the courage to start that so that we read, consider, and deliberate together, and I think that is cool. Uh, This morning we're continuing and nearing the end of a journey that we have been on through a little New Testament book called The Letter uh, to the Philippians. So you may recall, uh, but if not, if you're new and you're kind of catching up, this is a letter from Paul. He was an early leader in the Jesus movement and community. He traveled increasingly west out of Jerusalem towards Rome, uh, planting churches, and he planted this first European church in Macedonia, Uh, which would now be modern-day Greece, and he had been there, and now it has been 10 years since he's been there, and he's writing back this letter of encouragement. I want you to conceive of the fact that they did not have the benefit of the New Testament, you know. They had a profoundly gifted missionary come. They became convinced of the gospel of Christ, and now they've been largely working it out on their own with their locally established ministers. And so what's happened is um, those who made this choice for Jesus in Philippi in a newly minted Roman colony are facing increasing increasing scrutiny and sort of disruptive persecution. Uh, It's likely that they could lose friends, connections to family members, resources at their business, possibly even their homes, maybe even face physical persecution. Uh, Add to that that there are a group of people called Judaizers, which sounds scary, uh, who are pressuring them to become religiously observant Jews and basically telling them, if you don't do that, you are not saved. Uh, In particular, they want all the men to go through the rite of circumcision. And so they're under significant pressure from every direction. Their founding pastor hasn't been there in 10 years And Paul is writing this letter back to them. Uh, He's writing this letter, as we said, from prison himself. And so he is writing out of his trial about the hope that is to be found in Jesus, speaking life into their trial. Out of his own trial about the hope of Jesus, speaking life into their trial. That's why we've 
called the series From Prison with Joy to capture his message, his tone, and probably the most salient point of the whole thing, joy always, right? From prison with joy so that he can say to them, joy always, and he does, over and over in this book, say, rejoice, be joyful, have joy always. Um, I sure want to underscore again for you that he is writing out of deep affection, He loves this church and these people. So I don't want you to think of him as like some hard-nosed theologian that's just telling them, you know, straighten up and fly right, have a stiff upper lip, things are hard. Um, Do you remember Paul, uh, Tim, teaching about splunkna, compassion? He said, oh man, I love you guys. When I think about you, I'm full of deep gut-level love. I have the gut-level love of Jesus for you. And so he is writing um, much more like a parent to a child that is in trouble that they love. Um, I relate to what Paul says in this letter in a whole bunch of ways, but this one hits me the most. Uh, When I think about his tonality and the truth that he's trying to communicate to them, I remember that it's like a father who loves his children, his spiritual children. He formed that church. Uh, I think about like in relationship to my own kids, and I know all of you don't have kids, but some of you can imagine. And for those of you that do, you know how painful it is for your children to go through something difficult, how your heart aches for them. You want to do something about it, but you are powerless to change their circumstances. Uh, You can't get in there and fight the battle for them. In fact, you know that it's best that they learn it on their own, but it breaks your heart to see them go through something. And so what you do is you try, I think, as a Christian parent, to push them back to what's true, to keep saying, here's what's true in the midst of your trial. Uh, My son, Sam, will hate that I'm using him as an example, particularly because he's sitting right there. Um, But, you know, as a parent, I'm just thinking about being a sophomore in a new high school in a new town and everything he's going through and everything he has laid down to be here. And it makes my heart ache for him, even though he has this great attitude. And he'll tell you that I am just a broken record. I drive him to school every morning and every morning I say something like this. I'm not very inventive. Sam, just remember, God loves you and he's with you and he's for you. And your dad loves you. And your life matters. I want you to lift up your head in the midst of difficulty and enjoy it. Take on your challenges. Love your life. Don't miss an opportunity to enjoy the blessing of this day. And usually, since it's 8 o'clock in the morning, he does something like, uh-huh, right? But, but I mean it for my boy. That if he will learn the freedom of this, I mean it, that he might be okay everywhere. This is the heart of Paul to his church at Philippi, a parent to a beloved child. Take heart and rejoice, my children, for the truth is the truth. Um, Let's open our Bibles then to the book of Philippians. Luther would be delighted at that invitation. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, it makes it easier to find them in a group. If you're not sure where to find it, you can always check the index in the front. Uh, I really encourage you to interact with the Bible, your paper or your glowy one. Uh, The words will be up there, but have something that you're interacting with and can make notes of. Um, You know that for the past eight weeks, uh, Tim and I, and last week Dan, our outstanding youth pastor, have been taking us just through the first two chapters uh, of the book of Philippians. And we've been trying to kind of point out how it is building up to this crescendo 
that takes place a song in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So it all kind of builds up to this crescendo, the song of Christ, and then works its way down as a natural outflow of those. Um, it's, it's a short book. In fact, if you stick your finger in the middle and just flip a couple of pages back and forth, you can see the entirety of the book of Philippians. That's it. That's the whole thing right there. You just did it. And that I want you to get kind of a sweep of the thing. So that you remember in chapter 1, he opens grace and peace as a greeting. He tells them about his great love for them. He assures them that even though it seems like he is in trouble, he's in fact better than good. Even though he is in prison because he has yielded his life to Christ, and it's so good to walk with Christ even in the midst of trouble, that he is rejoicing from prison with them. And he starts unpacking that idea, what it looks like, in their life and in their community. And what happens is it kind of builds up, like I said, if you flip to the next page, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, it, it ends up in a song. And this is kind of uh, typical for Paul. He'll get so going in his theology that a song is his response. Uh, there are little doxologies in the midst of his thoughts. He just gets fired up about what is true about Jesus, and it comes out in a song, and usually an exquisitely written song or a hymn or a psalm in the middle, and that's what we have in chapter five, uh, or chapter two, verses five through eleven. And it is this hymn about Jesus, his inherent position as God, uh, about his choices, about his spirit, about the result of him willingly laying down his privileges in the name of love. In fact, uh, to underscore how important this uh, section of verses is, we had Tim preach on it for two weeks so that it would become the center of the book. And you remember that he challenged you, all of us, to memorize it, and we handed out these sheets. Can I ask you to stay on that? If you didn't get one or you lost it, uh, we printed plenty. Pick one on the table on the way out. Um, Our church will be benefited by hiding this core scripture in our hearts as a guiding principle. Because, as I said, Paul is building this book up as a crescendo, unpacking this idea of his life and is beginning to point it to Christ. So first he comes up to his thesis statement of the whole book. Chapter 1, verse 27, he says, whatever happens to you, don't you love how wildly unspecific that is, right? (laughs) Whatever it is happens, just a principle. People always want little rules. He's saying, whatever it is, good or bad, that happens to you, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this can include blessing or trial or boredom. Uh, And he said, whatever it is, conduct yourself worthy. And then he looks up to this moment where this declaration of Jesus Christ, because he is saying uh, to his readers and to us, here's what I mean. Here is the value which I am trying to convey. Here is the central point. Jesus laid down his privilege and his life that in an act of love that he would both recover his creation and be vindicated as the true son of God. So when I say these things about me or I say them about you, here is the model, Jesus Christ, that I'm pointing to. He is the one in whom we all emulate, Christ Jesus our Lord, who though though himself was God, did not grasp or cling to his power, but willingly laid it down in the great act of love to honor the Father and rescue his creation, was died and buried, resurrected to the ultimate vindication of who he was. 
So Paul has written this exquisite little song, and now his mind is full of these notions. He's thought about who Christ is, and before he goes on, he's letting it unpack in his mind. In fact, last week, uh, Dan taught us about Timothy and Epaphroditus, which at, at first seems like kind of an aside from this great song about Jesus, but it is the natural association. He's just said, here is Jesus who lays down his life for the cause of others and is vindicated as the true son. He says, now I think of Timothy, because there's no one like him, who lays down his life for the true cause, that he might be vindicated as the true son of God. And Epaphroditus, who literally almost died in the cause of the gospel. See what a fine example he is of this very idea that I just preached about Jesus. Well, this week we are going to see that Paul, before he returns to his central theme built off of 127, that whatever happens, that they will conduct themselves in a manner worthy of Christ, now he's going to turn his own life as a reflection back to what he described as Christ. He's going to beg them again and say, this time let me talk about me. Christ laid down his life. I laid down what seemed like a privilege to me. My position as an ethnic Jew, a blood Jew, which should have won me my position as a true son of God. I laid that down and picked up something much greater, fellowship and participation in the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's read Paul's testimony and then unpack it for a moment. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Again, he keeps saying it over. It's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it's a safeguard for you to hear it again and again. He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for they think they're the children of God, but it is us, we who are the circumcision, the true children of God, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put, who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is the correct day, of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, which means he could prove he was a blood legal Jew. A Hebrew of Hebrews grew up speaking Hebrew in regard to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I say to you, friends, whatever seemed as gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything or anything else a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. Literally, the word here is Feces that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What is this great grift? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Friends, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him and his death, and so somehow in that way, attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Let me explain, sort of summarize what's going on here with Paul in this passage. He is creating what I would call a deliberate echo 
back to the life of Christ. And he's about to urge the Philippians forward. And so he is uh, restoring an idea. And a picture always pops into my head. I'm sorry that this is the way my brain works. Uh, And I'm a terrible artist, so suffer with me. But he has kind of made an argument that looks something like this. That human beings were created like this with God, sub-rulers, co-regents and creators and creatives with him. But as he knew would happen, came as no surprise, he had planned before creation, those people chose themselves over him and lost their rightful position as the authentic children of God. And so the gospel, always from Genesis 3.15 forward, it was always looking for the coming of Christ, who, as Tim said, himself is God. God looks like Jesus. And he entered into his own creation down to where they were at from from their fall. He became like them and then through death and resurrection becomes the firstborn that's what the Bible calls him, of a new created order. And what is that new created order? It is restored humanity. The true children of God restored to their rightful position because Jesus became like us that we might become like him as he is the firstborn, this restored humanity. So Paul, having sung this song and considered who we are, is now begin to consider himself. And under him, I would say, Timothy and Epaphroditus as well as examples. So Paul sings this song about Jesus in exquisite Greek. And then he creates this deliberate echo in the beginning of chapter 3 so that he can associate himself with the life of Christ. Uh, I love it that he chose very particular words when he sung the hymn. It's as though he had in mind that he would want to return to such a unique word that you couldn't think he did it on accident. And so he says, in the same way, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Adam and Eve grasped their power and privilege and lost their place. He said Jesus did not consider himself that worthy of doing and in that way restored his position. Well, Paul says, listen, when he thinks about laying down his ethnic Judaism, he uses the precise same word to say, I do not grasp what seemed like my so-called privilege. I lay down my so-called privilege that I might be found in him. So he happily lays this down, and then the, the echoes just continue on. He says, Jesus was found in appearance, man, and I was found in him as a man of the restored order. Jesus suffered, but was vindicated, and I have suffered for my cause, but now I am vindicated both now and forever, so that he keeps going back to this echo of who Jesus is and his position as a restored human being. And I want to say it this way. He's happy about it. <laughs> he's, del- he's Again, I tend to bounce up a little bit. I see him bouncing. If he could write in the letter, he just sang a song. He's like, no, I'm not sharing with you bad news. 
Can I give you the best news ever? Whatever is going on with you, I, and let me use the example of my own life. I laid down what seemed to be something good only to discover that it's actually rubbish in comparison. If you will lay down what you have become a slave to, what you have clinged and instead pick up participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will have joy. Now, he's literally not saying, have that kind of joy that isn't real but is theologically true. He said, I'm, I'm full of joy now. The truth is so good, I am raptured with joy. I love my life. I can be happy in any circumstance. It is full of purpose and worth and value. And so he is filling this idea up in him. Why? So that he can write to his children, the Philippians, and instead of writing out of a sort of cold theological context, he is writing out of his own experience to say, you can trust me with this. I have lived it, I am living it, and I promise to you that it's true. So that in the midst of their suffering, he's a co-sufferer and co-rejoicer. So that he's, like I said, he speaks into the real situation of their pain from his own trial to say, if you will locate yourself in the truth, that you are restored, true. That's why he says, we are the real children of God. Those of us who have shared in his death and resurrection and participate in his life, we are resurrected now. We are sharing in the joyful good news of his life now. Christ will return where he is ultimately vindicated, and we too will be ultimately vindicated. So that when he speaks to these people who are losing their recent addition to Roman citizenship, losing their privilege, possibly losing their life, losing their connections, losing their friendships, losing their jobs, Paul is saying, trust me, the little losses you are suffering are nothing in comparison to how good it is when you start to get the freedom of living in Christ. When you finally get that you've shared in his death and resurrection, I promise you, rejoice. I I don't have a problem saying to you over and over, rejoice. I say it to you again. Rejoice in all circumstance as you understand what is true, that you will be found the vindicated children of God. Well, why does this matter to us? Because it's good for Paul and it's good for the Philippians, but we know that the whole intent is that for us in studying this and reading this together and as you read it, is to figure out uh, what this, how we handle this truth and apply it to ourselves, this rejoicing in all circumstance. Um, I want to spell it out for you and what I have called, and some, I think some others have called this before, I've certainly um, heard it, that uh, the kind of the rule of the open hand. If his words to Philippi project through Philippi to us, then that means the letter of Philippians is saying to me, and to Tack, and to On, and to Kelly, and to Carlo, and to Rob, is saying the same thing to us. I urge you to lay down what you perceive as a privilege, even lay down your own life that you might pick up the truth. Lay down what you're clinging to and cling only to Christ. Pick up peace with God. Pick up the gospel of righteousness in Jesus Pick up participation in Jesus' resurrection. Pick up love. Pick up purpose. Pick up hope. Pick up unity in Christ. Pick up the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in rejoicing 
in all circumstance. Um, I want to play a little game with you. If you're not the kind that play games, then nobody will know. I want to call this, like I said, the rule of the open hand. So what I want you to do is take both your hands. If you're holding a cup of coffee, set it down somewhere. <coughs> Lay both hands open on your lap in front of you. The first trick to having an open hand is that you have to let go of everything else. To have empty hands, there can be nothing else in it. And that means you have to let go of some things that you esteem as precious or people you love or things that matter to you. You have to let go of your own life. This is literally what his command is. Let go of you that you might be found restored. Sitting in front of you should be two totally empty hands. As you look at who you are and what you value, there are some things that you must completely reject that never go back in your hands. These are things that you don't just let go of. They are things that you throw to the ground. Look at your open hands and decide you reject your perceived privilege by race or gender or nationality. You reject rage, hatred, jealousy, or power over others. You reject living for stupid animal pleasures, which Paul will say living with your stomach as your God. You reject being guided or owned by an addiction to sex or drugs or inebriance of any kind. You reject your ego, your need to be right or respected. You reject the constant elevation of yourself, your needs, your self-centered, self-focused, self-pitying agenda, and you don't just let it go, you throw it on the ground. You lay your life down. I want to invite you to close one hand. I want you to squeeze that hand tight. And that one hand is the one thing that matters. Your unquestionable belonging to the family of God by your participation and death of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In that hand is the truth. You are safe. You are loved. You have been given perfect righteousness by Jesus. You are restored. Your life matters no matter what. Whatever your health, whatever your situation, whatever relationships, whatever circumstances you are in, God is with you. He loves you. He begs you, lift up your head and enjoy the day. You're a true child of God. Your life will be vindicated even if things do not work out. If you are in trouble, rejoice. Be still because it is true. God is with you and you cling to that truth. You squeeze that hand closed. Now I want you to look at your other open hand. One hand squeeze closed, one hand open. This is where everything else about your life lives. You don't get to put stuff back in it. You don't get to close it. So this is where your relationships go. This is where your hopes, your dreams, vacations, successes, beauty, honor, respect, circumstantial happiness, all of that lives in that open hand. And you don't even get to put things back in it. You just get to hold it open and let life sort of dance through it. And when you become anxious that you might lose something, or that your job won't work out, or that you'll be in trouble, your health is slipping. Don't close that hand. Only cling to this one. Squeeze this hand. This is the very message Paul is saying. 
squeeze this, you have been given Christ that you may live with the rest of your life hand wide open. Zain Christos, to live as Christ and everything else is freedom. One hand closed, many things rejected, most things held with an open hand. The freedom of life in Christ, the ability to rejoice and live, is understanding that you share in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, like Paul and the Philippians before you, and you have the freedom of life. You are free to just live. Clinging to Him, on the other hand, open. Paul loved the Philippians, and he wanted to see this, wanted them to see this so clearly so that they could walk with Jesus in joyful life, be honorable and true, and be a living witness to the gospel. And it's clear that he was afraid that they might crumble and discredit Jesus. And I suspect he might be afraid for us in the same way. And he urges us to hold unswervingly to the truth as he is doing so the same. In fact, he ends this passage beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, and I have laid down and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward, in Christ Jesus. I want you to know that Paul loved the Philippians, that Jesus loves you and sent Paul through the witness of this man to these people to give you the same good news. Whoever you are and wherever you are at, you share in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of his life. I want to end today with two invitations. And the first is to those who do not know Jesus. And I just want to say to you, there is no hope to be found in the organization of the church to save your life. There is no hope to be found in the practicing of religion for righteousness. There is no hope to be found in being good enough to restore yourself. There is one way, one hope, and it's free. It's actually the best news. The best news is that you can be restored as a free gift through Jesus who came like us, to restore you to who you are, to give you new life as a free gift through his death and resurrection that someday later you might learn how to walk out in joyful alignment. Um, As many Sundays as we can, we just want to give you an invitation, and that invitation is to him, to the life that comes through Jesus. It's an invitation to him and to this community. You will find us a group of just normal people trying to walk it out and trying to be faithful. Um, today, I'm going to pray a prayer before we have communion. And if this morning, I'm going to have every head bowed. You want to make a decision. And the way God draws you in is, it says it kind of draws you in over time. But if you want to say, I give my life to be restored to who I am, and then I want you to join me in that prayer, either in my words or your own words, but make it your own, and we'll talk a little bit more about what you can do. Uh, The second invitation is for the Christians gathered in the room. In a moment, we are going to celebrate communion together as the great symbol of our participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if Hillcrest is your home, you know the drill. You're going to come up, you'll receive a piece of bread, you'll dip it in the cup, 
you will thank God for the gift, you'll eat it, and you'll return to your seat. Uh, But today, I want you to just come up with open hands. I mean, maybe even literally open hands. Uh, Come up with an open hand. And on the way up, just lay down everything else. And when you get up here, take the bread, experience the cup, and cling to Christ alone. Let him become your center and your purpose in the joyful restoration of life both now and forever. Let down work, success, self-definition, your health, your home, and your life so that you may keep that all in an open hand. Paul saw the way, and he laid down what seemed privilege to him because he saw Christ lay down the great privilege, and it become a joy to him, the name above every name, the one who is the restorer of humanity, so that with Paul, with the love of a father, could look at his own kids with the encouragement and say, I'm not making something up. I encourage you to the best possible life, both now and to eternity, so that he could extend that invitation to us. In a moment when I pray, I want to invite you to come forward and receive communion. We'll have two stations in the front, three stations in the back. The middle one is your gluten-free option. Um, Come up and thank God for what he has done. Nothing compares to the love of Christ and the fellowship of the Spirit and being among his people. Would you all bow your head and join me in a prayer? If you're praying this for the first time, I just ask that you would make these your words, that you would let the Spirit of God uh, move through what I'm praying so that you would own it as your own. And you will be starting a journey today which will change your forever, change your tomorrow, and change your eternity. Lord Jesus, thank you. We look to you. We look to your example, to your life laid down for the restoration of all that is good. And we look to your servant, Saul, who you called out and who learned to lay down his life and see his life restored and joy in all circumstances and joy into the future. And we think of the millions and millions of Christians before us who have made this decision. So today we say again, and some for the first time, we choose you. We lay down our so-called privileges We lay down our so-called put-together life that we might pick up real life, real hope, be found as real children of God. We give you our sin and our brokenness that we might find in you life and hope and truth. Thank you for providing the way and for being the example. We choose you. We love you. And we ask for your help that you would show us the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.